I wouldn't say there was trepidation, but I think what happens is when you're a new writer, you're really obsessed with the choreography. <laughs> you're, you're like, where is everybody's hand? Are they standing or are they laying down? Are they on the bed or are they on the ground? You know, what are they feeling? Um, who? Where's the clothes? Oh my God, I forgot to take her underwear off. Welcome to Steam Scenes, the podcast about... Wait, hold on. Sure, sex is, well, sexy, but it's also sassy, and it's silly, and it's fun. Hi, I'm El Greco, and I write steamy romance. On my podcast, Steam Scenes, I'm joined by my fellow romance authors for some explosive, (laughs) see what I did there, conversations on writing all the naughty bits. Sit back, relax, and join us for some scintillating conversation on Steam Scenes. USA Today bestselling and award, award-winning author, my blah, blah, Genevieve Jack visits Steam Scenes today. Genevieve writes wild, witty, and wicked hot paranormal romance and fantasy. Coffee and wine are her biofuel, and the love lives of witches, shifters, and vampires are her favorite topic of conversation. She harbors a passion for old cemeteries and ghost tours thanks to her years attending a high school rumored to be haunted. Her perfect day involves the beach, her laptop, and one crazy dog. Welcome, Genevieve, to Steam Scenes. Hi, Elle. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you for being here. I'm super stoked um, to have you on here because, like, you're, you're like, so into everything that I'm into. So, <laughs> so this is going to be super cool. Excellent. Um, yeah, because I mean, Love Lives of Witches, uh, Vampires, I'm so there for that. Not so much shifters, but a little bit. Uh, <laughs> or I should say I enjoy reading shifters. I don't know that I could write them. And that's what one of the things we're going to talk about. Um, and old cemeteries and ghost tours are super, super fun. So yeah, like, I feel like I feel like we are like, our souls meant to be together (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so I guess to start I'll start with the question I ask everyone when did you realize you wanted to become a writer oh super early on so I am the youngest of five kids from a um, very conservative Catholic family which you wouldn't think would leave lead to steamy um, PNR but it did Um, but my, my parents were blue collar workers and they got this idea, uh, that they were going to build a cottage in Northern Wisconsin. So every single vacation growing up from the time I can remember, uh, we would drive up to this place and they were building this cottage by hand. And so I would bring my books because I was like, there's like a seven year gap between me and my, my brother. So hold on. They were building this by hand. Yeah. They were building building it by hand in the North woods of Wisconsin. This was like how I spent my childhood. And Jesus, (laughs) with five kids running around, (laughs) five kids. And we were all living in a trailer while they built this. And it was like, like four times a year, like every vacation they would get. But I was too young. I was like six or seven. So I was too young to, you know, hold a hammer. (laughs) Right. I'm over here going, what were they thinking? Oh my God. Like yeah, this had to be the seventies, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, eighties. Okay, late, late, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. But so, you know, I'd bring all my books and I'd read them all. And then I'd have nothing to do because there's no TV and no devices back then, you know. And so I would make, I would write my own books and like, like oh, I had a stapler cool. and like staple them together, you know, and then I'd like give my mom this book when she's like exhausted at night and read my book. So I actually remember, 
um, that my very first book was called The Dog Who Ate Pancakes. And it was a do- like about a dog that would come and beg for um, pancakes at our trailer and the dog would go and bury them. And so he was like this bottomless pit, like he'd eat like 700 pancakes because he was just burying the pancakes. So that was what the story was about. <laughs> Actually kind of a wonderful story. And I think you should resurrect it and make it a children's book. <laughs> I mean, there's some, probably some sort of like moral to that. Because you could sort of, you know, turn it into a children's book with great illustrations. Please tell me you still have a copy somewhere. I don't. I don't even think. Oh. My, I don't even think my mom has it. But I remember it. I remember it so vividly. Writing that little book. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. I love. I love hearing these stories about. Well, when I was a kid, I made this book, and like, and I absolutely adore that you can remember what the story is about. <laughs> That is so awesome. So, okay, so you're a kid and you're writing, but when did it sort of dawn on you that it could become a career? Oh, gosh, not until a million years later. Um, I was uh, a CPA uh, working for a major insurance company. And um, one of my children, I had two kids. One of my children started to have uh, health issues. And um, I had to leave my job. One of us, me or my husband, both worked for the same company. One of us had to leave to, to stay home. Uh, and, uh, I decided it would be me. So I left a position in, uh, upper management and, um, you know, your kids do all these things. So my kids were in swim lessons, right. And I'd be sitting by the side of the pool and I just needed something to do. So I resurrected this writing stories while they were in lessons. And, uh, so my very first book I wrote, you know, hand wrote in a notebook and then, uh, self-publishing was kind of becoming a thing. And so, um, uh, one of my friends is like, oh, why don't you just throw it out there on Kindle? Oh, the Kindle, you know, the Kindle was so new. <laughs> it's like the first, first generation yeah, Kindle. And, uh, and, and so, I was like, what is this magical thing? Right. <laughs> So I did. And uh, it took off. And then kind of the rest is history. That's awesome. That's so funny, too, because I actually wrote my first novel um, partly while my daughter was doing her fencing lessons. Oh, fencing. How exciting. Yeah, Sitting outside the, the, the room in the community center. And she was doing her fencing lessons. and I was tapping away on this like cheap you know, $300 laptop. Yeah. Acer, did you have the. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was my first laptop. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what I did. That's so funny. Okay. So your first book was about a dog hoarding pancakes. Um, and your, your next book, the one that you wrote during swim lessons, that I assume that's a romance, correct? Actually, no. (laughs) I'm two people. I have a pseudonym and my first pseudonym was, um, a YA. So it was a, a YA, a bestselling YA series. By oh a, my God! By a different name, <laughs> and Genevieve Jack uh, came into existence a little bit later. Uh, Genevieve Jack writes uh, paranormal romance. Now, okay, yeah. so how did you how did you bridge the gap? What did you do? What made you take that leap from YA to romance? Um, because uh, writing YA, while it was fun when my kids were small and sort of made sense, because you're spending your days uh, watching the Disney Channel, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once my kids kind of grew out of that phase. Um, uh, it's like playing the piano with only part of the keyboard. So mm. I started to want to stretch and um, I wanted to use the whole keyboard. I wanted to use the the low notes and the high notes. And, um, <laughs> and 
romance fulfilled that need for me and why I don't think I could go back to YA now because I just feel like it's too constraining. I would agree with that. I, I sometimes go, oh, you should write a, then I'm like, nah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It could be because there are too many, I don't know, rules. I mean, maybe not rules, but yeah. all, all the genres, you know, all the tropes have rules. The genres have rules, but yeah, you're right. It does seem a little bit too confining. So right. was the YA, was that paranormal or was that? Yeah, it's paranormal fantasy. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so that's what carried through to the romance. Correct. Okay. <laughs> right. And there is, there is romantic subplot in those books. So. Right. But not the. Right. Yeah. Not the steamy bits. Not the steamy bits. <laughs> <laughs> that we love so much. So what, what drew you to romance as a genre? Romance is really the only genre where you are guaranteed a happily ever after. Yep. And especially paranormal romance, uh, even death isn't the end, you know? It's like uh, the only place where uh, uh, the happily ever after can last forever if you wanted to. You know, if you're talking about vampires or you're talking about angels or whatever, it's it's even after death. So um, that's what draws me to it, you know? Every time in my life, I've had some horrific circumstances. You know, a child in the hospital or uh, someone's passed away. Um, romance novels have carried me through that, you know, sometimes yeah. you, you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't want to get out of bed, but I really want to know what happens at the end of this book. And that's enough to put one foot in front of the other, you know? So I think, you know, romance, uh, serves a purpose for people. Okay. And so, yeah. uh, my books are unapologetically escapist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. So for for you, um, well, also, let me let me backtrack it for a minute, because I'm curious, what also drew you to paranormal? That idea of, um, you know, being raised Catholic, this idea of uh, things don't end after you die mm, uh, is yeah. sort of like built into uh, the belief system. Right. Okay, and yeah. I'm, I'm not I, I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm Lutheran. But um but I sort of uh, always had my, that's where my imagination went, right? Mm -hmm. uh, heaven, hell, angels, demons, vampires, witches, yep. you know, um, there had to be something that was greater than the just contemporary world. And uh, I, I don't know if I could write a contemporary, actually, because that's not where my imagination goes. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I, I can see that. I I um well this is something that I had to talk to you about because you know I saw in your in your body of work you write Fay and like I also actually write urban fantasy too oh yeah um so and I want it under a different name um <laughs> I want yeah. to and and um one of the things that I would like to do is paranormal romance um and and I'm actually working on a story that could go either urban fantasy or paranormal romance and I saw your ghost in the graveyard. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a paranormal romance. But it's the series follows Grateful Night, the, the main character, Correct. the heroine, by the way. Fabulous name. <laughs> fabulous name. Um, and so I was so this is a paranormal and it's following one character. It's a romance. How did you how did you handle that in the series? Because yeah, you so, give them the happily ever, happily ever after, you know? Yeah. Uh, so what you have to do is every book has its own happily for now. 
okay. so at the end of book one, uh, Grateful Night and Rick, who is the vessel for her immortal soul, he's her caretaker, um, they end up together. So they're boyfriend and girlfriend. So that is a happily ever after in, its, uh, in and of itself, you know, because for, for that moment, for that book, they are together. And then with the second book, it ends with them being engaged, right? So there's, okay. <clears throat> they go through all these obstacles and then they end up becoming engaged. And then with the third book, they are separated at the beginning of the book and then they are reunited at the end of the book. So that's your, your mini happily ever after. And then with the fourth book, they end up getting married at the end. So then when you look at the, so each book has its little, little tiny happily for now. And then okay. when you look at the entire series, that series has the big happily ever after that they're together, they're married forever. Okay. Did you plan that series out completely before you started it? Because it does seem like you might have, <laughs> and I'm very bad at that. So I'm wondering if maybe um, I need to do this. Yeah, I I don't uh, plot like some people do where it's like they have outlines of every single chapter, you know, mm -hmm. but I do always know the beginning and the end and sort of how I'm going to get there. So okay. uh, I use a, uh, like kind of like a storyboard, you know? And so I, right. I have the, just mo it might just be like one line of what happens uh, in the three act structure kind of thing of a book. But I, I do have that laid out. Like my dragon, um, the treasure of Paragon series, which is my, my dragon shifter series. I knew before I wrote the first word that it was going to be nine books and each book would uh, focus on one sibling um, oh, in the wow. in the series. You know what I mean? So I right. I kind of you have to you have to kind of have that laid out. You don't have to know exactly what happens, but you do have to know what you're what you're aiming for, right? Right. With the right. last book. Right. So funny because I am I'm such a I'm a I'm a planter. So I plot yeah. kind of, but I pants kind of, and it, you know, and it all right. kind of comes together at the end. Um, and when I did, um, you know, but when I do my series, it's like, I don't really think too far out. I know with like my rockstar romance, my LA rockstar romance series, I really only knew that there were definitely going to be three books with the three mm -hmm. sisters. Um, and I hadn't thought much beyond that, but for, you know, every book, introduces new characters into the mix that could then go branch off and get their own books. So that's sure. kind of like, I'm kind of very loose about it. You know, I don't really have a plan, but I kind of feel like maybe, um, you know, for this paranormal, if I, if I do make it a paranormal romance, I might need more of a plan um, because I did want it to follow this one character, but now I'm starting to question that too. Whether you, you're questioning whether you want it to just follow the one character. The one character, because I think, yeah. you know, I'm writing in a way that I'm now looking at it and I'm like, well, I could spin this off. Sure. Um, you know, so, you know, I could, I could create spinoff characters, I, you know, so anyway, it's just given me a lot to think about. So I one clicked um, your paranormal because I was like, I want to see how she does this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to get, get some inspiration here. <laughs> so. So I'm curious, do you remember the very first romance you ever read? Yes, I do. It was um, A Knight in Shining Armor by Jude Devereaux. Have you ever read that one? No. Tell me about it. Oh, yeah. It's like, 19, I think it came out in like 1989. I, I probably read it in the early 90s, but it was about uh, a woman named Douglas who's like this modern, high-powered, I forget what she does, but she's something in business, you know, and 
she something happens to her and she's crying on a grave and it ends up being like a knight and she goes back in time and falls in love with this knight and it's just amazing it's like time travel romance and um I don't know I was hooked (laughs) I was hooked after that so even your even like your reading choices sort of seem to (laughs) attend on the side of like paranormal and fantasy oh sure yeah I was a total Twilight junkie when Twilight was a thing, you know, I burned through all those books. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Um, do you have a favorite writer who writes in the paranormal or PNR genre? Oh, God, there's so many. Uh, I mean, J.R. Ward would definitely be up yeah. there with, uh, you know, the Black Dagger Brotherhood has meant so much to me over the years. I think I've read them all. Uh, Christine Feehan, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Jennifer Lynn Amrantraut, of course. Sarah J. Moss. Um, just, uh, I have so many. I, I know I'm leaving somebody out that I probably one-click all the time, but but really, I, I try to read pretty broadly in the genre, and there's so yeah. many good ones out there. You know, I'm going to, I want to jump back like real quick, because I just remembered that, that this was something that I did want to talk to you about is your Catholic upbringing. Oh, um, I too was raised Catholic. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and I do think that that I completely agree that I think that influences my interest in the paranormal. Yeah, there's a lot of magical sure. thinking in that religion. Don't there really is. And a lot of ritual. Yes. Right. A lot of ritual. I like hated going to church. But I love the big masses. So like Christmas Eve right. mass. Yeah. I can watch the shit out of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and when they used to do it in Latin, yes. you know, like that was like, and oh I, my God. I bet you can smell it too. Like when you yes. think about it, you know what the smell of holy that water smell. is. Yeah. You can yep. smell holy water, the the um the herbs that, you know, they would burn, uh, the incense yep. uh, and holy days. Yeah. Yep, that lingering, that lingering, mm-hmm. and 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 it all that lingering. It's like the herbs, the yeah. smoke from the herbs, sort right. of flavor the water. And so I went to elementary school at an elementary school called Saint Joan of Arc. Mm, and you in, went to a Catholic school? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh my God! So yeah. in in Illinois here in in uh, Lyle, Illinois, and um, instead of having uh, a statue of Joan of Arc in like her military armor outside the school they had one of her being burned at the stake oh no yes. <laughs> and so oh, they're so dramatic yes right <laughs> so that's the other thing about the catholic religion is you go in and there's these statues like these looming statues of angels or these like 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 the crucifix is really hor- horrific right it's and, savage they're savage right, really <laughs> savage and that's, uh, I, um, when I, when I was, uh, married, my husband is, uh, Lutheran was raised Lutheran and I became Lutheran. And so I'm, I'm not Catholic anymore, but Lutherans don't have that. <laughs> it was a big surprise to me that they had, they just have like the regular cross. It's yep. not like a crucifix. And they also don't really have, um, those big looming statues like you get in uh, Catholicism, but that definitely, you know, uh, imp- was an impression on my young mind. It sounds like for you too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we had, um, there is, there is just so much, I don't know. I I feel so conflicted by the Catholic faith faith. You know, I'm sure you do too. I think that it seems to sort of, um, 
you know, does something to us. I not like not like I was any great Catholic to begin with. I mean, let's yeah. <laughs> rarely right. showed up at church. Um, yeah, but but you know, anyway, like I, I also wanted to sort of talk to you about what that did in terms of you as a romance writer and a steamy romance writer and writing sex scenes because I do feel like there is this part of me from being raised Catholic that's like, oh, you can't write that. Oh, you can't write that. Yeah, Yeah, you know, uh, I have a nursing degree. I'm a registered nurse. I never worked as a nurse. Uh, I went to nursing school when I was, my kids went to school. It's something to do. And then I get my nursing degree. And um, it's a long story, but... (laughs) But, I have a few. Um, I have a few use, useless degrees and certificates as well. I, I, I mean, not useless, just that I don't use. Yeah, right. That, yeah. I think a lot of writers do because it's that that bottomless pit of learning that we want to yes. learn the next thing. But, but anyway, uh, I think because of my, you know, learning about the human body and human sexuality, um, I a long time ago left all of that sort of shame that is wired into you when you're being raised Catholic behind. And uh, I just don't have those kind of hangups anymore, uh, especially raising two girls. Uh, I have I have two girls who are now adults, uh, 18 and 23. And, uh, you know, being a romance writer, I've been very open with them about um, sex. Uh, We uh, talked about sex their whole life in different ways. You know, Uh, of course, when when they were young, it was very simple that boys are different than girls. And then as they, you know, grew up uh, more details. But um, because of that, we have a very good relationship. They're very open and, and talk to me about their experiences and, and uh, I can make sure that they're healthy and, and right. things like that. So um, I just think sex is part of the human condition. It's, in, it's, it's really, you know, it's the chemistry of life, right? It's how we, how we reproduce, but it's also like this very healing part of being human and uh, how we connect with someone on the most intimate level that yeah. is possible. Um, and it's just so important. Why wouldn't you want to write about that? <laughs> it's so great that you you said that it was healing. I'm, I'm actually, I'm in the middle, in the midst of taking um, a course. God help us. It's got to be the writer. We do the weirdest things. <laughs> uh, so I'm taking a course in becoming an intimacy coach, even though it's oh, not yeah. something I want to do. I just was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Right, <laughs> let, me, right. let me sign up and do this. It's a pandemic. I've got nothing else to do. Um, and so I'm doing this. Course. And one of the things that um, was actually brought up in our last session that, you know, I was taking notes on, I was looking at my notes this morning and sort of like underline, underline was that sex is actually a form of healing. Um, it, it is actually a form of trauma healing. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. And that sort of yeah. really hit me, like hit me in the gut. And it was like this sort of raise of understanding. I was like, oh, you know, like, oh, my God, that makes total sense. And, um, you know, there, there was obviously a larger conversation around fantasy and stuff like that that was going mm-hmm. on at the same time with all of this. But the real takeaway was that the act of sex, this act of physical intimacy is actually very healing. And I was like, wow, okay. Looking at it that way, I'm like, I am approaching right, the writing of these intimate scenes in such a different way now. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, just the act of um, being naked in front of someone else and then allowing yourself to like share, um, you know, both touch and body connection. I mean, if I if I said, um, you know, let me stick my finger in your mouth. (laughs) You'd be like, hell no. I mean, (laughs) what the hell is wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with you? Like that that would require like so much trust, right? Just to like do that. But then you're like, uh, that's why, you know, when you're writing a sex scene, it's it's like a big deal. You're talking about someone putting a part of themselves into you, you know, into your character. I mean, that is that it's a huge deal and it, and it requires all this trust and intimacy. And uh, I think that's why it shows so much about our characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm trying to think what I want to ask you next. There's so many questions. There's so much to talk about. Um, I mean, I guess to you, and this is, I, I think I have a feeling like we've already answered this, but what is, what makes a sex scene good? For me, it's the, this idea of stripping, um, uh, both physically and emotionally, the character down to mm-hmm. their essence, uh, what really makes them, them. And maybe they don't even know that about themselves before the scene and then building them back up through, um, through the sex scene to, to something that's greater than what they were before. So that something mm. that changes them and it has to do with the other person, the other person filling uh, a need in them uh, that uh, maybe they didn't even know they had, but, but together those two people are, are whole in ways that they weren't before. And I try so, to um, show that in the scene. So, so are do you approach each sex scene as this sort of like or mini journey of your characters? If you're saying that they're, they're something in them changes at the end. So in each, in each scene, are you sort of taking them through that, you know, cause obviously the larger journey of the book, the character starts one way and changes yes. and by the end of the book is something else. So do you, do you do that through each intimate scene as well? Yes. I won't say that every single sex scene in every single one of my books is that deep, but there usually is at least one in, in okay. the book. Usually okay. the one that is around 50 or 60% of the book is the one where there is a major internal uh, journey. You know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and sometimes sex is just sex. If there's a reason why, <laughs> you know, my characters say my characters are already together. They've already been on this journey and they've had sex like, you know, 300 times. <laughs> there's going to be less change happening, obviously, in that um, scene than um, for characters who who this is their first time being together. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think that that is something that makes a sex scene better than another sex scene is if, when you have that emotional journey. That's really cool. So, so for like, what was it? So we're going to jump back to your first book and you made a conscious decision to leave YA and write romance yeah. because you did feel like you're, you know, you were leaving something out and you wanted to explore, you know, deeper intimate relationships. So for when you wrote your very first one, were, were you like all systems go or was, was there trepidation there? I'm just kind of curious, like what it was like for you to write the very first scene. I wouldn't say there was trepidation, but I think what happens is when you're a new writer, you're really obsessed with the choreography. Yeah. <laughs> and like, where is everybody's hand? Yeah. Are they standing or are they laying down? Are they on the bed or are they on the ground? You know, what are they feeling? Um, who? Where's the clothes? Oh my God, I forgot to take her underwear off. Whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like... 
it's like you're really obsessed with that choreography. So I know that my early books and my early scenes probably that shows, you know, that I that I hadn't really gotten uh, the tennis match down, you know. And so it's like you you start writing uh, the uh, putting tab A into into slot B kind of uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of writing. And yeah. and now having um, written uh, many many books and edit, gone through the editing process, I hardly think of that at all you know it's more i'm thinking of the emotional journey and what they're saying to each other and what they're showing each other through their actions so i would say that you know that's how it has changed over the years but definitely that first one was probably heavier on the choreography than it should have been (laughs) yeah i know i still fall into that you know um the choreography part, I, I think, well, I'm just, because you also write paranormal, I, I'm assuming you're writing fight scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, and so there's a level of choreography there. And I, and I often wonder mm-hmm. if my, I mean, I hate to call it a crutch, but it kind of is like my sort of like, I always, that's my go-to crutch is the choreography. And I'm wondering if that comes from, you know, actually start when starting out writing more fight scenes. It could be. Yeah you know, um, and sort of like being a little bit too reliant on choreography rather than emotion. Yeah. Yeah. That's the ongoing, the ongoing, uh, struggle for writers, right. Is to really key into that emotion, which is, that's your, that's the uh, money spot. Yeah, <laughs> you, it really you is. definitely want to invoke emotion in your reader. That's the whole point. So when you get to these scenes, do you find that you slow down? Does it slow you down a bit in terms of like word count or are you still like you're just able to sort of like maintain, you know, your speed or what have you as you're going through them? Or do you do you force yourself to kind of slow down and take it in a little bit more? You know, uh, it just depends on the specific chapter and specific scene. Um, okay. For me, uh, certain scenes in my book uh, come to mind. Like before I even start writing, there are certain scenes that are very bright in my mind and mm-hmm. easy for me to um, write. And those just speed by. And then a lot of times the transition scenes take me longer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the ones that I that aren't, uh, aren't top of mind when I think right. of the book. So mm-hmm. that's really... Uh, what slows me down or what speeds me up. It's not the sex itself. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, all right. So I wanted to sort of dive into sort of like something a little bit more specific, particularly with shifter romance. Um, sure. What is it like to write the beast? Because I know that there are certain rules in terms of issues of like, well, they, they have to be in human form when they have sex or otherwise it's bestiality, you're going to get flagged by Amazon. You know what I mean? So like, I'm just kind of curious, are there, are there rules that you're following here? Well, uh, that one for sure. I I don't think that that's not me. I wouldn't be writing them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, if you buy into the Joseph Campbell hero's journey shapeshifter, every shapeshifter is really um, has something that is uh, hidden about them, or um, something that is um, uh, needs to be revealed. So, uh, a lot of when I'm writing shifters, like in my dragon books, uh, a lot of the story has to do with the, the non-shifter coming into the extraordinary world and sort of learning uh, the limits 
And of course, there's some danger involved, right? Because this person is going to have sex with a, with a dragon and a dragon can kill them. So usually some of that comes out. So in all of my dragon sex scenes, the wings play a part because they, they, um, they have their wings tucked into their back. And during sex, the wings will come out. And this is something that's coming out of their body and has obviously a very intimate moment when someone can see and touch these wings. Um, they don't do a full shift into a full dragon, but just this partial shift where you can see their wings. Um, I was wondering about that. Yeah. So yes, I was wondering about that while I was reading through the scene. That is really, really fascinating. So this is something that is part of the um, part of the intimate the, the intimate journey, right? Is to have right. their wings come out. And you know, I think like to everybody understands Twilight, right? So going back to Twilight, even though uh, Edward wasn't a shifter, if you were, will recall, like when they were having intimate moments, kissing or or having sex in that last book, you know, there was this, oh, he could kill me if he accidentally bites me, or if he accidentally his um, power goes a little bit too far, it could rip her apart, and he was super concerned about that. So. Uh, you know, in my books with a with a dragon, there's always that concern too. Like, am I being too rough as the dragon with this um, non-dragon person? Um, and of course, consent is like a really, really big thing in my books because um, when a dragon um, bonds, they bond for eternity. And they're once they are bonded, they are never with any other um, any other woman or man. And so they have to be very careful with sex that they don't um, bond unintentionally or without someone's consent, because if that person leaves them and they've accidentally bonded with that person, there's no one else for them. They're, they're just bonded for the rest of their existence. Is this something within your own magical system or is this something that is like, yes, (laughs) that is is my own magical system. But I think that can, I think that consent among, if you're writing shape shifters or, or really, in the paranormal genre, I think consent takes on a whole new meaning because you're talking okay. about eternity, you know, like vampires. Right. You're talking about shifting someone for, you know, turning someone to a vampire for the, forever. Um, right. And so uh, addressing that uh, becomes really important, uh, you know. So because you also write about Faye, I love Faye stories. Yeah. You invent your own magical world for that as well, because I find the one that exists for them, like the lore is so complicated and I don't write them because I just don't want to screw it up. Like, I'm just like, it is a little bit, you know, a little bit too complicated for me. Or do you also create your own rules for that? I I create my own rules for everything. Um, I usually do a little bit of research, but I do not write nonfiction. This is not a nonfiction book. So... (laughs) So whenever I, I go into anybody's mythodolo- myth, uh, mythos or lore, um, I'm going to make that my own. And if okay. I want, if I want, you know, my fairies do not look like Tinkerbell. They're, they look like regular, ordinary people. And uh, they might have different powers, you know. And um, I think as long as you frame it up, what, what exists in your world, I think that uh, readers will accept it. Okay. So you've never had pushback like that wouldn't happen. You know, the only pushback I have ever gotten on any kind of dragons, fae, witches, whatever, were from other authors, not readers, who were like, oh, that dragon only exists in northern Scotland. <laughs> you know, like oh, some, my God. You know, <laughs> this, this other author had like studied 
she'd studied the history of dragons to the nth degree over uh-huh. her PhD in something or whatever. And, you know, she's, she was like, oh, but you know, that would never happen because, and I'm like, really? Wow. <laughs> I don't think readers expect you to stick with exactly, you know, the, the past myths, you know? Okay. All right. That makes me feel a little bit more confident then and potentially tackling a face story someday. Um, yeah, you, you know, because I, I am, I try to be pretty meticulous with my research. It's actually a little bit overwhelming. And so I, I actually work a lot in like witchcraft and demonology in those places mm-hmm. is sort of like where my interests lie anyway. And so, you know, I have gotten, you know, readers that are like, I really appreciated that she really reviewed this magical system very well, you know, like that I stuck, you know, that I was pretty, but uh, intense with it. But I was just like, but I love the idea of having, of giving yourself that creative freedom to just create this magical world, Uh, you know. The other thing that I think about, the other thing that I think about, you know, with the Dragon of New Orleans, I touched, I touch a little bit on voodoo in there. (laughs) And I intentionally did not include rituals that I had studied that were real rituals because, you know, that's a real religion. And my goal is not to write a paranormal romance book that has real religion or real religious ritual in it, you know, because I think at some point that becomes disrespectful. Like it's almost like breaking down, you know, Catholic communion (laughs) or, or something that would be said at the altar during a Catholic mass for the intention of entertainment. So personally, I prefer to change it a little bit. Like if if I come across a ritual, I will intentionally change it to be fictionalized out of respect for whatever practice that I'm studying, if that makes sense. Right. Okay, cool. Cool. So, um, hey, let's dig into your intimate scene. Uh, it's from the Highland Dragon, yes. which is your latest release. Yes. Um, and remind me, is this this is part of um, a series? Yes. Yeah, this is part of the Treasure of Paragon series. It's uh, book six. Each of the books follows a different sibling, and they are exiled um, princes from a land called Paragon, Paragon, which is a different realm than Earth, okay. and they were. Uh, their oldest brother and heir to the throne was killed by their wicked uh, mother and uh, stepfather. And so um, they were, they fled to earth to escape the coup. And uh, they're interested in taking their land back now. And so uh, Avery in this, before this scene happens, um, being human, totally human, uh, offers to go and fetch Xavier from this um, bubble that he's sealed himself and his clan in in the Scottish Highlands uh, to try to get him to help the other siblings take the land of Paragon back. And she's the only one who can get through the wards because she's human. The wards uh, filter out all of, all supernatural beings. So okay. she offers to go and get him. But the problem is she goes into this, this realm thinking that he's going to be the chieftain and sitting in the castle on his uh, throne over his clan. And when he gets there, when she gets there, um, he is imprisoned and there's an evil fairy um, ruling his land. So so as a human, she has to free him, but then he won't leave. He won't come back to the to the modern world with her. 
because he needs to save his clan from this fairy. So this scene um, is that she, he's, they've fallen in love. He's mm-hmm. asked, actually um, asked her to bond with him, and she's refused because she doesn't want to stay in 1745 Scotland in this bubble. Uh, she wants to go back to the modern world. And so tomorrow, when they wake up, he will face off with Lachlan, who is the evil fairy, and she will cross over, cross to the ward to go and return to um, his brothers and her sister um, in the modern world. And so they know that they're going to be separated, but they also have this insane attraction to each other. And they've decided that this is how they're going to say goodbye, that they're going to have this one time together. So they both know it's this could make it so hard for them um, tomorrow to do what they have to do. Okay. And that leads us into this scene. But they are, but they are agreed that there will be no bonding, even though they are going to be having sex. Correct. Okay. Um, I have to say, like, I just have this one sentence that's highlighted, like, right at the beginning. Which <laughs> is, she reached for his belt and started unlatching it. It rattled to the floor and his kilt dropped, leaving him, noth- him in nothing but his long white shirt. And I was like, okay, she has me at kilt. So <laughs> what, like, what makes, there are so many Highlander romances, right? And I'm sort yeah. of curious, like, first of all, what do you think it is that makes these Highland Highlander men so irresistible? Like, why are there so many romances devoted to them i think that they don't you think they break a lot of gender roles (laughs) i mean they're 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 alpha men alpha heroes uh who wear skirts i mean i just think that that's pretty intriguing and sword wielding so extremely like as masculine as you could you can think of a man being that is how you would picture a highlander but yet there are things about them that are so um, modern in their way of thinking and their respect for, for women and, the, and, uh, and gender roles. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, uh, you know, I think there's some novelty to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, um, the area of Scotland, of course, is so, so beautiful. Yeah. And also um, uh, just... Um, you know, this idea of, of the quintessential male. Uh, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> do you, have you, do you, um, have you ever seen the Highland games? Yes. <laughs> I Don't you love, love that? I love watching them. Yeah. And the, what is it? The Adair stone. Have you seen that? Which is like that big, they, they, um, they lift these heavy, heavy stones and like it gets progressively heavier until they're lifting like, you know, they can barely get this thing up. They're supposed to like lift these round stones up and put them on like a pedestal and they just go down the line. I think they're the Adair stones is what it's called. Oh, I, I have not seen that. Oh my God. I love watching it. So for some reason, I find it so soothing. So like after a stressful day, I'll like queue up a video on YouTube and I'll just watch them. You know, men do it, women do it. It's really cool. It's really pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I think it is. A, I think it's in the Highland Games. Um, I think, but I could be wrong. But it's sort of like a strong man, you yeah, know, sort of thing. But yeah, it's really cool. Fun. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious because you are also, you know, like not only are you writing a shifter or paranormal, but in this instance, you're also writing historical romance. Correct. Because I'm crazy, and I will never do it again. Oh. <laughs> 
I mean, are you, because that's the other thing where you're, the research is a little, like, can be yeah. daunting, you know, and, it can be daunting. So I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Elle, um, I was supposed to go to Scotland for 10 days to research this book, and because of COVID, I, I couldn't, and Ugh. so I had to do all the, I had to do all the research uh, online and on, by phone and uh, internet, and it was painful. Highland really? Dragon was a very painful, difficult book to write um, because I don't, I don't write historicals, and uh, I had had this idea when I wrote book one that this this book would be what it is, and so I wanted to do it, but um, but the research that went into it was, I, I mean, I usually produce a book in three months, and it took me six months to do this one. Wow! So it doubled doubled my process you know, to do it. And it's not something I, I intend to do again. <laughs> I will probably just stick to the straight, you know, paranormal in the future. So th this is the only one then that moves into the a sort of time travel historical romance. Thing. Right. The only other one would be the dragon of Sedona uh, flip flops uh, to um, early colonial America. There okay. are, there are cha chapters that take place in early colonial America, because the, uh, the love interest in that is a Native American um, who he met at that time, okay. the dragon met at that time. So you get to see the past of how they met in, I think it takes place in 1698 and 1699. And so every other chapter is, is going from the past and the present. And, okay. and that was hard too. I had to do some research, but, um, but not as hard <laughs> Seventeenth <laughs> century Scotland. Yeah. No. Great. <laughs> okay. So now I've got a longer, a longer section here. And I'm not going to do the Scottish accent as much as I want to. <laughs> I can usually do it okay. I've spent actually a lot of my professional career around Scots. So um yeah, so I can actually do it okay. Um, but I haven't done it in a while and usually I need a little warm-up. So anyway. Um what sound will you make if I kiss you here? He pressed his lips to the inside of her elbow, his tongue tracing the vein there. She moaned at the heavenly feeling and basked in the glow of his self-satisfied smile. Dragging her nails down his chest and the hard planes of his stomach, she wrapped her hand around his shaft. Let's make it a duet. He didn't disappoint. His trill rumbled and his wings unfurled above her. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. Um, filling the small room, she stared at the webbed wonders. Awed, she could inspect them up close. She trailed her fingers along the edge that extended beyond his shoulder. The scales were coppery with Blue, with a blue undertone that came from fine, almost invisible feathers between the scales. They blended down into a fleshy web similar to a bat's wings. At the apex of the arc, at the front of each wing, a talon as large as a bear claw extended toward her. Whew, this is so beautiful. Like oh, just this you. moment. And then, and you know, it was, it, you know, it's so funny because it was beautiful to begin with, just the, 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 the image, like you paint it so beautifully too. The image of that wing, the wings coming out, and and that and what they look like, um, and how she can actually see them up close, and sort of having the, that detail, right, of the wings. And now knowing a little bit more about the book, that they only come out in these intimate moments, like that the wings come out in these intimate moments, that actually makes it even more beautiful. 
Right. So the dragons do use them to fly. Like if they haven't completely shifted, they'll use them to fly. But they're usually usually invisible at that point or they're at a distance. Uh, They also use them to fight when they're in Paragon. They they, uh, use those claws to fight. Mm -hmm. But... The idea is that these, this, it's, I mean, it's like a tongue, right? This is something that tucks away inside their body. And normally you would not get to touch them or be up close with them. But in this intimate moment, she's right there and she can run her hands along them. And, and that creates a sensation for him. So, so it is. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious in terms of the, the, the magical world that you're creating, do you find this, was this part of a discovery process while you were writing or did you know when you sort of set out to write the book that this was going to be part of um, what happened? Or I should say maybe the series, because obviously they're all dragons and this is what happens with them. So I'm kind of curious when you discovered that this was going to be part of your magical world. Yeah, in the character development process, for sure. Um, You know, I think if I had been writing vampires would be something with the teeth, right? It's always something with the teeth. Um, And witches, it's something with the magic, right? That the the magic somehow comes out or they glow or something in an intimate moment. And I just made that up. That's, that doesn't actually happen. <laughs> but, um, witches might not actually glow when yeah. they have sex. Yes. But, but, you know, when you're thinking about a dragon, it's either going to be the wings or the talons or the tail, right? Right. Mine don't have a tail when they're in like their human form. So for me, it was uh, the wings. But I think anytime, you know, you have a paranormal creature, there's going to be something that makes them, that shows the reader that they are the beast so that you don't Mm. forget that, that differentiates how this would go down if they were just a normal person. Right. 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 Oh my God. Beautiful. Okay. Um, I actually love how well you can articulate this because when people ask me about my writing, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's just something that happens, you know, <laughs> like, and I, I feel so stupid. I love how, how articulate you are about this and how well thought out the systems seem to be, you know, like, I'm just like, wow, this is kind of like next level shit. Like really <laughs> prior to this. Next so I'm not in an interview going, I don't know. <laughs> okay, next little bit. Last night, you said what was happening in Paragon wasn't your war either. Is that why? Do you feel like if you join your siblings to battle Eleanor, you're just being used again? Only Gabriel can sit on the throne and you've already spilled enough blood in the pits? He gazed at her, his heart swelling with affection. It's as if you know my very soul, Avery. I almost did the I almost did the accent. <laughs> she blinked. I think I get it. You and I are so much alike. She shook her head. I came here because I was sick of living my life for somebody for someone else, and you built this place for the same reason. He rubbed a lock of her silky hair between his fingers. I only if I hadn't made myself vulnerable and stayed here to help you, I would never have understood my own power or fallen in love with you. His heart skipped in his chest as his eyes bored into hers, seeking the truth. You love me. Yes, I do. Xavier's heart pounded anew when she raised a hand to tease the talon of his right wing, then scraped her nails along the inside webbing. He shivered and closed his eyes. You cannot imagine how good that feels or how much I love you in return. Oh, this really tugged on my heart. (laughs) You know, it's, it's really amazing when I was sort of reading and actually I would say 
through most of the scene, which is where, you know, it's, uh, I think you sent me about 2000 words and through the bulk of the scene, there was no actual sex happening it, but it was so intimate. And I felt like this moment right here, like such vulnerability and such intimacy playing out between them but there's no sex at all. Of course, now I have a little note here going, but just you wait, because it does get like super wild and crazy. But leading up to that sort of physical frenzy that they end up having is like these, just like a, a, like moment after beautiful moment that they dig sort of, the intimacy grows and grows and grows and grows between them. Right. Right. And that's, that's actually why I picked this one. As the one oh. I to talk about. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I just think that that's what differentiates a great sex scene from um, a run of the mill, you know, uh, uh, you know, slot A, uh, uh, tab B kind of, kind of mm-hmm. um, anybody, anybody can write sex, right? But if you, if you write sex over and over again, it's like a tennis match, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same thing's going to happen. It's just a, a different position. Right. Um, but this is why this sex scene needs to be in this book at this time. It's, it's moving the plot forward. It's moving the characters forward. Um, it's showing things about these characters and really allowing you to see who they are. Right. Yeah. When I, I know some of my scenes, like, kind of like the first blush, if you will, the first blush of the scene before, like, I, you know, go back and rewrite and edit and all of that. I get sort of tripped up in this, like, moment where I'm like, oh my God, that was over awfully fast. Like, you know, this is supposed to be a romance. And, you know, unless it's a quickie, these things usually last longer. And, you know, and sort of like, so, in my, I think like in my, in my head, I'm kind of like, oh, well, you know, he shouldn't come, like he's coming too quickly or like there isn't, a, but then it's like, no, you know what? It's not the actual take, take dick insert here thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that is too, that is too quick. It is actually that lead into the intimate moment where you can draw it out way more, um, mm-hmm you know, and, and sort of, and, you know, and then get that emotion, that, that kind of emotional roller coaster that you're kind of yearning for when you're reading these things, you know? Right, right. What is he saying to her? What is she thinking? What is she whispering in his ear? You know? Why? Yeah. 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 So is, is, is yeah. this scene coming at that sort of 50, 60% mark? Yeah, I think this was exactly at 60% now that I think okay. Okay, so this is really the that sort of penultimate sort of intimate moment between mm-hmm. the two of them that's going to kind of change the outcome of their relationship or the trajectory Correct. of the relationship. Cool. Okay, we're about to steam. About to steam it up here because we are steam scenes after all. <laughs> okay. He thought he might come apart for the for the feel of her, warm and soft beneath him. The sigh of pleasure she released made his dragon rise to the surface. The instinct to claim her as his own was overwhelming, and he would. Even without a mating bond, he'd make her remember this. My God, Xavier, this is beyond anything ever. She touched her forehead to his chin, braced herself on his shoulders, and thrust her hips into his. He growled. He'd meant to go slowly, to make love to her tenderly. But Avery had other ideas. 
Harder, she moaned, digging her nails into his back beneath his wings. He gave her what she wanted, unleashing his inner beast hard and fast until he feared he might hurt her. Thrust for thrust, she matched his pace, and then in a feat of strength he wasn't expecting, she rolled him over. His wings slapped the bench, sending it skidding across the wood floor. She rose above him, one hand braced on his chest, the other grabbing and tugging the talon of his left wing. Her hips ground against his, arching. She tipped her head back and cried out. The sight of her rising and falling above him drove him into a frenzy, and her rough play ignited his passion to a level between making love and a physical attack. He sat up, driving deeper into her. A crack of thunder rattled the walls and lightning lit up the windows. The storm outside was nothing like the one raging between them. She bit him lightly on the jaw and scratched along his ribs, scoring his skin. The pain was pure ecstasy. Fisting her hair, he bent her, her head back and nipped her throat, soothing the bite with tender kisses. She only ground harder against him. Her breasts mounted against his chest between their bodies. You're mine, Avery, his dragon hissed, wild and feral from his soul. You'll always be mine. My God. Whew. <laughs> so we went from sweet and tender to smoking hot. Insert dragon joke here. And basically <laughs> one page, right? I mean, this was crazy. Right. So like, and this was dragon sex. Like, holy shit. Like he, like he's having his sort of dragon moment and I was he was he feeling like he was about to shift like that was sort of like what I was getting like he was sort of holding back yeah he's holding thing. back the, yeah. his inner dragon is like pushing against his skin and he's holding it back so that he doesn't you know doesn't hurt her <laughs> right her. right and do your dragons breathe fire they can yeah Okay. All right. Because I was also wondering, like, is that sort of a tension point where he could light her on fire at any minute? You know, like kind of. Yeah. Literally? Yeah. Although they when they're in their human form, they they have a lot more control over that than when they're in their beastly form. So, uh, yeah, he's not going to light her on fire. <laughs> but like his, his lips are always warm. Like that's one thing when with their first kiss, you know, his temperature is naturally higher than hers. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I thought this was absolutely um, beautiful and like a completely gorgeous um, section that really like, I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. I've, I, I, this is actually, I've never, I've never read a dragon shifter romance. I'm not a big dragon person, so it never appealed to me. And so like reading this, I was like, Oh my God, this is actually really, really good. And I'm probably like, should not be like that and I should read more dragon shifter romances because this is ab like absolutely stunning I, I loved what you did thank you I appreciate that yeah and I love the magical world that you created it's really cool thank you really cool so um let me see I think I was wondering oh so for all of this with these magical worlds that you're creating I mean where do you find the inspiration for what you're writing uh you know that i i don't really know okay <laughs> i have a wild imagination if if i ever find that uh my ima imagination is lacking i really turn to music or videos or paintings any kind mm. of art usually stirs uh stirs the imagination um, okay but uh, that rarely happens i i have very vivid dreams and uh when things happen in real life, like I remember a, a little girl on my, our block uh, fell off her bike and she got this little 
you know, scratch on her um, calf and she was showing it to me and I was like, oh, it looks like a zombie bite, you know, (laughs) it's it's just how my mind works, you know, like everything that happens, I think of, you know, the paranormal part of it or what, what the story could be behind it. So I don't know, where, where do our ideas come from? I call it the muse. I call it, I talk to my muse, but so, but, but you had mentioned earlier, you felt like you couldn't write a contemporary. And I'm yeah. kind of curious why. Because I, I have no idea what, what the conflict would be. <laughs> if you, if the, if nobody is like bizarrely paranormal, what's the, what's happening in this story? I don't know. I'd have to write like, you know what, if I wrote one, I'd ha- it would have to be like a suspense or a mystery. Yeah. I struggle with that too, actually. And again, I do think it comes from that urban fantasy paranormal background is yeah. that I, you know, it's hard to trust that just the emotional journey is enough. Right, right, right. I really have a lot of respect for people who, uh, this one author I know, she wrote an entire book that takes place in the elevator. Like this couple is just in this elevator talking. And I'm like, you wrote an entire book. Wow. They're in one room. They're in this elevator talking. And I mean, it does go back and forth with uh, what happened before because they had known each other before. But I'm like, I would just not even know where to start with plotting that. Like, wow. And there's no, like the, like there's no, the elevator is plummeting to the earth or anything like that. Like, no, they're just in an elevator. <laughs> it's stuck. I mean, the elevator is stuck, you know, right. and they're talking about how they got to know each other or whatever. And there is, you know, this emotional arc, but it would just never occur to me to write that story. <laughs> you know, I I need more. I my books are action packed, yeah. and I, I really need the action and the bad guy and everything to to. That's how where my brain goes. So I don't know. It's just that's just not my thing. That's so, so funny. That's so funny because my four contemporaries. I've got two. I rely a bit more on that sort of like suspensey thing. Like yeah. they're not really like action adventure, but there is some action in it. Um, that that I weaved in and then and then two of them the one that just went off to my editor in the second book in the series way more reliant on the emotional um on that emotional arc and that you know that just that that simply that that simply changed it and actually the second book was my best received really I think out of all of them um you know the the uh, I think that the readers really did find that strictly emotional arc which to me I was a little that was such a nail biter for me because I was like but nothing happens you know (laughs) nothing really happens they just fall in love (laughs) but it was like no something actually you know emotionally happened and she and they did sort of change from one you know from the beginning to the end um oh I love I love reading those books I just think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not, I mean, because I really did not think I was like, oh my god, nobody's gonna enjoy this because this is just so boring. And I'm like, you know, can I throw something in here that explodes? You know, like I was like, can I just explode something? That would be great. We'll just explode something. Um, but it's really hard. It I find it really, really hard to trust that. Like for me personally, like I do want something to blow up, and then and then I, I and then it just like makes me feel a little bit better. It's like it's my crotch, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, I'm a little surprised because like, you know, I mean, what you're writing with dragons, like that emotional intensity is like so right there. You could totally yeah. do a contemporary. You could do it. I could. But don't don't you think then the, the uh, tension comes from real life issues like somebody's addicted to something or someone's lost a baby? I mean, some there has to be some kind of conflict. 
and those issues um, tend to be a little dark and depressing <laughs> at some point. Yeah. <laughs> It would yeah. be great if, uh, I love rom-coms. I loved, uh, like, The Hating Game. Oh, my gosh. If I could write The Hating Game, I'd write The Hating Game, right? <laughs> but, I mean, that was the fun. Have you read The Hating Game? If not, no, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, go out and get The Hating Game. Like, get it? Today. Okay. Oh, okay. so good. Oh, so okay. good. Uh, it's really, really good. I love I love contemporaries. You know, I love reading it. It's just not where my, it, it would be like, you know, swimming with one arm. It's just not where my muse takes me. Not where you go. So what have you got coming up? What's next? Um, so I'm working on book seven right now, Hidden Dragon. I just released Highland Dragon last week. So uh, Hidden Dragon is due out in April. Excellent. And so uh, there are two, after Hidden Dragon, there are two more in the series, uh, nine total books in the Treasure of Paragon series. And then after that, I'm working on a Fae trilogy. Oh, excellent. <laughs> in in development, so... Excellent. So where can readers find you to keep up with all of this awesome stuff? Uh, GenevieveJack.com. Okay, cool. That's the best place. And I'll have places in the show notes with some other uh, social media links as well. Um, Genevieve, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Elle. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Sign up to get email alerts when a new one goes live at lgreco.rocks. And don't forget to five-star us on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.